Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast hosted by me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC. And you can find me on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs and brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. Now for the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ryan Fife, founder and CEO at Humanity, the employee scheduling software that allows you to value your employees. Now Ryan's built the business now serving more than half a million users across 87 countries with a team exceeding 100 people and continually growing across three continents and humanity raised funding from our friends at point nine and i have to say a huge thank you to christoph at point nine for making the intro today and in the show today with ryan we deep dive on all things funnel optimization it's a cracker so get the pen and paper out and i'm delighted to hand over now to ryan fife founder and ceo at humanity good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Ryan, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much to Christoph at Point Nine for making the intro and to you for joining me. Thank you, Harry. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on the show. Now, I'd love to kick off proceedings today by hearing about you and your origin story with humanity. So, so how did it all begin and what was the aha moment for you? Yeah, I started working when I was very young, uh, probably when I was about 10 years old, which went at that time moving through all different types of odd jobs uh, before ultimately landing in the hourly system, working in restaurants, shops, painting, etc. And and after I finished school, um, I started focusing more on the internet. I, I saw a huge opportunity there and I landed on internet marketing and freelance web application developments. Um, At the time, I was actually living abroad in Panama, and it was on a trip home to Canada after my first year away that I was reacquainted with the scheduling problems that small businesses face, ironically through a friend that was working at the same restaurant that I'd worked at while I was going through school. And so the common pains that employees face in shift-based jobs were things that I knew firsthand. Um, These are things like just trying to figure out when you're working or when you can't make a shift, trying to find someone to cover that. Um, So I I saw those problems and then also, you know, maybe being a little bit older at the time was able to complete the loop and understand now, you know, the pain that the management side of the business has. They're trying to focus on running a business and not dealing with time consuming scheduling tasks. So that was the spark for humanity or, or shift planning at the time. But I think the real aha moment was more around discovering B2B SaaS as a business model. Up until then, I'd been more bent on trying to create the next, you know, sexy social app. And so this realization that there was all of these unsexy problems in the world that needed to be solved and that they actually had real business models behind them, that was the most exciting thing for me. And when I asked you today what you were most passionate about, we, we, we discussed the funnel uh, and you said, obviously, your love of data and metrics. And so I want to deep dive today on the funnel. Um, so let's start at the top of the funnel with, with marketing and discuss to what extent you agree with the expanding role of marketing in today's SaaS environment and to what extent you think it is the function of the marketing team to fill the pipeline for the sales team? Yeah, I love this topic and and I I agree in the expanded nature. Marketing is such a broad function and I think that's what's important to understand is it really marries the combination of the creative and technical and it really touches all parts of the funnel. You know, maybe to back up though for a second, I think the most important thing for marketing for any SaaS company is an amazing product. It It all starts with the products and then after that, marketing can help drive awareness, drive adoption, both at the top and then throughout the funnel. Um, and we're really moving into a space now where marketing is so data and tools driven, especially for us. We deal primarily with small businesses, which means that we need to be you know, ruthlessly efficient in our acquisition costs, um, which many times means that a sales led or a higher touch approach just won't work for us. We have to be efficient how we acquire that lead. And then even once the lead's acquired, 
you know, equally efficient at converting them from a trial user into a paid customer. So that's primarily a role of product and marketing and not sales. How do you use data in your marketing team to affect the decisions you make with regards to customer acquisition? Yeah, the biggest thing for us is really just being having a complete view of our funnel and understanding what the different conversion points are and then who can drive those. And it's, it's been fascinating for us as we've moved to consolidate all of our data into a data warehouse now. Um, we can really see the effects that everything have. And oftentimes what we found in the past, we were optimizing for the wrong things because we didn't have a holistic view of the entire funnel, but more importantly, the cohorts that follow afterwards. So if we make wins, for example, on the conversion side, because our sales team is getting more efficient at converting you know, trials into deals, Unless we're following that through and actually looking at the later cohorts, were we overselling? Um, did we have higher churns in month two and three, for example, because we sold the wrong product market fits or didn't do our effective job at onboarding, for example? So those have been a few of the, the key things for us. You said optimizing for the wrong things. What does optimizing for the right things look like for you today with humanity? Yeah, optimizing for the right things, I think, is just being able to complete the picture again um, to understand that it is one funnel um, and not letting any individual part over-optimize, um, whether that's you know from homepage visits to to a trial user. If if you try to push everyone as as quickly as possible into a free trial, they might not spend as much time learning about the product before they before they get into it to actually self-identify themselves as having product market fit with the solution that you offer. That type of situation can happen all along the way if you view all of those individual um, funnel conversion points as individual events without connecting them all together. And kind of merging the two topics there of conversion and the expanding role of marketing. Uh, content marketing now obviously plays a huge role uh, in the conversion space. To what extent do you think so, though, in the consideration and intent to buy phase of customer acquisition does content marketing play? A huge consideration. So content marketing is such a fun place because it has value in so many different places. And it's really a long-term investment that a company needs to make and decide on because good content can be reused and provide value at, at so much points in the future. We view content in terms of enablers that can be leveraged by a team for customers that are already have I self-identified themselves with the problem, but then also at the top of the funnel for creating awareness and being there for buyers that might not yet have realized that they have a problem or that you are one of the potential solutions. A cool example for us has been, you know, just the understanding that a number of, uh, you know, the high majority of customers in our space are coming from pen, paper, and Excel. So oftentimes they're not online looking for, SaaS scheduling solutions, they're just out there trying to find a better way to schedule with Excel. So we want to be there even at those parts with the right types of content to help them through through that process, but also build awareness of our brand at the same time. How do you measure your ROI on content marketing? I hear a lot of founders say to me, oh, the feedback loop so long on content marketing, it takes six to nine months to find out. And then I'm still unsure of the ROI. How do you kind of look, look at that return of investment and time in the content marketing sphere? Yeah, I think that's, I don't have a, a perfect answer for that. It's something our team's working really hard at. I think getting better at both improving the quality of content, but also being able to measure the effectiveness and understanding where and how um, different pieces are viewed at different parts along the funnel. I don't have a silver bullet for you there. I just think it's more about quality um, and less about quantity and then being able to to measure and view where, where customers are 
are having touch points with content at, at different parts in the funnel. And, and talking about kind of the funnel there and, and marketing being the early stages of the funnel, uh, how do you look to optimize the early stages of the funnel with, with SDRs to allow for grace time on, on the account exec to allow them to convert effectively? Yeah, so for the last few years, we've spent so much time A-B testing, and we'll continue to do so different ways to optimize the top of the funnel. And I think the the few headlines would be from the last couple of years would be, you know, really viewing our inbound funnel as more of a client success role and not a sales role. So that, that sounds counterintuitive, but I think what we found is that leads in our funnel for it are already highly engaged. They've self-identified. And in many cases, they're already far along the way of setting up their own account. So it's not about you know having to close them um, as much as it is about facilitating adoption. And then we, we've tested with rapid response and rapid response is incredibly efficient. Um, and, and it's more about tools and, and being able to staff for it to ensure that you can get the right type of coverage. So we've moved our SLA down over the past year from an hour to below 15 minutes um, because we found that whatever touch point that we're optimizing for, whether that's, you know, leads to touch points on calls or demo set, for example, the, the faster response definitely provides the value there. I, I'm too excited when you say about kind of integrating customer success into those early stages, uh, in, and in particular in terms of the facilitating adoption part. How do you look to then facilitate adoption to allow the kind of customer onboarding to be more succinct and easy? Yeah, I think the understanding that everything now is so multi-channel um, and it's primarily chat and automation-led, it's not to say that you don't have to pick up the phone. You definitely do. But that's becoming less and less and oftentimes not the primary way. And in terms of, you said about the SLA down to 15 minutes, how important is the time to value for you then in the conversion sphere? Yeah, it's incredibly important. Um, all of the metrics that we have show that it's within the first five minutes that customers are likely to make the decisions and buy on their own or not. So it's the activities and the value that they can see within those first five minutes um, that makes all the difference. So we see this like huge drop off where it goes like first hour, or first five minutes, first hour. And then after that, there's virtually no chance of getting a hold of them um, or of them becoming a successful customer. And then if they do become a successful customer, let's say, and they progress into the free trial phase, how do you approach free trials with humanity? Some founders are kind of adamantly against them saying, you know, paying customers are always best and free trials just take time and don't pay. What's your approach with humanity? I don't think there's a right answer here. It's like, what's the right solution for your product and your markets? Um, for us, we deal with such high volume um, in our funnel that's inbound and marketing-led. So our focus is really on driving engagement on those trials, showing them value to ultimately get them signed up for a paid subscription. And again, we've tested everything from trial length to promotions and trials, no trial, do you get extensions, etc. And we keep landing back on 30 days and I think there's a few reasons for that, which which hopefully can be helpful in others making the same decisions or at least getting the foundation or thought process in place to set up the right tests. And the first one for us is just time to value. So again, we talked about that five minutes in terms of getting customers hooked to take the next steps. But during a free trial, you should always be aiming to show customers as much value as possible and let them make the buying decision on their own. In our world with scheduling, that means you know a lot of change management and effort because scheduling is primarily done on a biweekly basis. So that means that even during a 30-day window, if we've done our job perfect, our customers maybe get to see our product in action during one complete schedule or payroll cycle. And then the other part would be just understanding the buyer persona. You know, who is the buyer? How much time do they have? And how much investment does it take to get into your products? 
And in our example, again, we're dealing with primarily small businesses. These are managers. They're very busy. They're trying to focus on running their business. You know, investing time to set up a new piece of software can oftentimes be something that they look at on their mobile phone. Um, they, they realize it's a pain, but then, you know, it can get kicked down the road as they still have a lot of um, other things that, that come up higher priority. What have you found that doesn't work in free trials? Are there any elements? You said 30 days works well. Are there any kind of time phrases or, or anything else that doesn't work for free trials? When we tested in the past with different trial lengths, for example, I don't think we did an effective job at actually readjusting every other part of the business to align with that. Um, so an example is, you know, if your business is used to focused on a 30-day trial and then you change the trial length to 14 days, but you don't, you know, reset all the expectations internally, all your automated marketing and different things that's happening to, to re-engage those trials, you don't really end up with clear data and so I think it's mostly just ensuring that when you are testing for things, you set the test up in the right way that you can get actionable data out of it. And you said before uh, to me earlier about customer journey having multiple touch points across across it from your team. So what do you mean by these multiple touch points? And, and how does this shape how you think about the coordination and the working of your team? Sure. So all teams, I really believe, need to be aligned around the same goal and, and that's showing value to the customers and ultimately driving them further into adoption or whatever part of the funnel that they're in. And the rise of the Internet has really put us in this, this interesting place where customers are now first. And it's also created a much more complex ecosystem of channels to connect with customers on. You have email, chat, phone, social, um, you know, all these different places that, that customers can, can start contacting you from. And then on the flip side to that, there's all these fantastic tools that are available to make you know that a lot easier for, for, for a team. And that's been one of the key takeaways for us is investing the time to make sure that the team is enabled with the right tools um, and making sure that those tools are integrated so that everyone gets a complete picture of where that customer is, who they are, and is able to move quickly, followed by data. So actually understanding how those tools are being used, how to optimize them as all the touch points and, and channels for scaling. An example of that for us is our support chat, which is one of our primary channels. And while a lot of that is, like, let's say, support and how-to in nature, every single one of those chats is a touch point that we're having with the customer. It's an opportunity to be proactive, drive further engagements, understand their needs, and for example, provide great feedback back to the product and client success teams. Absolutely. You you mentioned tools there uh, and kind of integrating them in, into your team's workflow. I'm intrigued. What tools could you not live without? Yeah, the few tools that, that our team runs with now are Zendesk. We really value the, the user experience there and the integrated nature. We're in the process of setting up Salesforce, so we'll see how that runs. In the past, we've had an in-house CRM, which, which got us pretty far and pretty well. Intercom, a really fantastic customer engagement or communication tool. And then the, the tool, which is more of a home-baked thing again, but it's our data warehouse with Tableau. That's the one thing right now that I, I would never be willing to live without. And then I'd love to dive into a quick fire round, uh, 60 seconds after. So I say a statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Sounds like fun. So productivity hacks and tactics. Help me out here. You know, I can talk about cold showers, morning runs, the coffee, but I think the biggest thing with productivity is really just around prioritization. So understanding what's important um, to spend time on and when. 
I find that, you know, given how often I travel right now with our international teams, travel and even time off can be very helpful to analyze this because it's when you get back from a trip or, or some time off, you have this backlog of stuff waiting for you and you can really realize retroactively like, hey, where was I blocking the team? How can I unblock them quickly in the future or prevent that from happening? And you mentioned the travel, uh, design and development for using Belgrade. How's decentralized working and how do you look to create a kind of cohesive team? Yeah, I'm super proud of our international team and, and kind of our roots in that aspect. And we have not just design and development here, but also our marketing team, finance, support and others. So I think it's it's a cool part of our story. The most important thing here is just realizing that you have to be a lot more intentional to get things um, done and that you take for granted when everyone's in the same room. Simple misunderstandings about body language or, or different things like that can lead to a lot of fallout and, and lost productivity and stress. And then, you know, when teams are apart, you have inherent advantages, but then you have to make up for them and you can't underestimate that you still need to bring people together in person um, frequently. So we, we do that on a quarterly basis with teams that overlap. And then once a year, we bring our entire company together for what is kind of like an epic year in building uh, team week and celebration. And then your favorite SaaS material, this could be book, blog, uh, articles, um, author, who is it for you? Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned books. I think the the world right now sort of has all of this real-time content happening um, through Twitter, blogs. So I use Flipboard to help create that and, and view that as primarily on the mobile. So I view that as, you know, what's happening right now or a quick fix to get something on, on my mobile when I'm in transit. But I think it's hard to compare that to the isolated time when you spend, you know, deep diving into a book which is really like an author's life work and not just, you know, the thought of the week that they've had from, from that regard. So I generally try to pick books that are relevant. Uh, I consume those when traveling and it's, it's been super helpful. If you could do the humanity journey again, what would you do differently? I would not go into employee scheduling and I'd start a company like Slack. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's a nice reminder that everything in hindsight is 2020 and a lot of the business models are things now that seem obvious weren't so obvious at the time. Um, but on this journey, a couple of the things that have been um, interesting and, and there's still things that I'm working on, it's really just spending more time with the team and a lot more time on recruiting. Um, the moment you try to scale something, it takes a lot of incredible people to get that done. Things like recruiting and, and motivating a larger team, they take a lot of work. And as a sole co or as a sole founder, those were things that didn't really come natural to me. So that was a, a big thing. And then just focus not trying to do too many things. When the company grows, it's incredibly important to keep everyone aligned. Um, and when you do tackle something new, just doing it from a position of strength, the right people focused on the right things is really an unbeatable combination. But the, my, the moment either of those two variables change, you know, things collapse quickly. Not in the schedule, but one I'm always intrigued by, how do you deal with the loneliness element of being a sole, co being a sole founder? Yeah, it can be lonely at the top, um, but I think that it's only as lonely as, as you want to make it. And so from my perspective, I've always relied on having a very incredible network of um, mentors. Um, you know, our investors are now added to that circle. So being able to have, you know, access to a guy like Christoph at Point Nine, those are people that make the journey less lonely and they get a share in the journey as investors and colleagues, but also as, as, as friends. So that's been super helpful. And then one final question, and, and we're out of the quick fire, but ending on the exciting times and product expansion, you're, you're diversifying to wider employee management. So talk to me as a founder, how do you retain the same laser focus that we always hear is so important uh, when diversifying your product line? 
this is a fun one. And I, I don't think we've done or I've done the best job at this in the past. And we're still learning from that. I actually started a hashtag last year that we use internally, which is just focus, 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 which, which is used by our team whenever we feel like we're off track. And so for us, the expanded product, I, I don't think has been the root of as many of the issues, but it's more just been around the growing team and customer base um, that that's led us astray at different times. So as a team grows, it gets harder and harder to individually connect and motivate and align with every individual when you're in direct communication with them. And then on the customer side, when you start dealing with different segments and going after deals in, in different places, you might not have as much product market fit there. And the deals get a lot more complex. They require customization, which can be a huge distraction to, to a, a company. How do you view the balance then of that you know, much larger tickets where they have a lot more red tape, a lot more regulation and time required compared to the lower ACVs, which generally are much easier to close? Yeah, we find it's um, it's ironic because sometimes the lower ones actually can be a lot more painful to close. So it's kind of the sweet spot at, at how high you can go up where you still have out-of-the-box product market fit and then being very intentional and clear on what the goals are so that if you are you know potentially going out, you're using that, um, let's say, customer as a, a partner. And they help you build um, some new new part of the product, and it's and it's new functionality that you again need to be intentional, making sure it's aligned with your long term roadmap. It might be prioritized slightly different for them, but you're not customizing something for any individual customer. It still needs to be something that you can take to the market and ultimately see as as fitting within your vision. Well, Ryan, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for for joining me and and revealing the humanity story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Harry. That was a pleasure. Again, a huge hand to Ryan for giving up his time today to appear on the show, and I'd like to say again a big thank you to Christoph at Point Nine for making the introduction without which the interview could not have happened. Also, if you enjoyed the interview and would like to see more from Sasta, then head over to the website, sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. As always, we so appreciate the support and look very forward to bringing you Monday's episode with Matthew Bellows, founder at Yesware.